Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Rachel Bloom is the creator and star of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on The CW, for which she has won the Golden Globe and the Critics' Choice Award for Best Actress in a Comedy Series. Bloom's first big break in musical comedy came in 2010, when she made a music video celebrating author Bray Bradbury. Along the way, she has written and or performed for Alan Gregory, Robot Chicken, and BoJack Horseman. She took Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on a live theater tour this spring, and she next co-stars in Most Likely to Murder, a movie written and directed by her husband, Dan Greger. He joins in our discussion, so let's get to it! So, Rachel Bloom, thank you for finally sitting down with me for Last Things First. I am so happy to be here. Me too. So, Wait, Last, last Things First? Last, oh, oh, you're going to explain it. Okay, yeah. great. So, Last Things First, uh, what are the odds you can get Pizza Hut to sponsor season four of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Very low. No one wants to sponsor our show. We've not, begged for sponsors. Not even once Pizza Hut sees how well you look in there, branded... South I mean, by Southwest. If they want <laughs> to, hat and shirt. I do think Olive Garden might sponsor. We mentioned them enough, but we would because when you do product placement, you get extra money, and mm-hmm. we would love that. No one's offering that, so I think the odds are low. <laughs> Still, but Olive Garden, if you're listening, or Pizza Hut, or Pizza Hut slash Taco Bell, since they often team up, anyhow. Which is such a weird pairing. Yeah. What a weird marriage. <laughs> unlike, marriage. unlike your marriage with Dan Greger. Which is very, very sweet. And yes. and uh, years in the making. Uh-huh. Uh, we were, t- we were t- talking the other day about how you knew from a very young age that you wanted to be a Broadway musical theater star. Yeah. At what age were you going around Manhattan Beach telling everybody this? I mean... Probably second grade, so like seven, eight. And who or what instilled that notion in your head? Well, my grandfather was an amateur stand-up comic and theater director. Okay. And so they started taking me to plays when I was very young, and my mother was a music major, and she played piano. And so I would learn songs from both her and my grandpa. And I remember when I was five seeing a local community theater production of Guys and Dolls, and it just got me. I was like, this is amazing. Now, before we go on, how how did your grandfather define amateur? <laughs> uh, <laughs> amateur was, stand-up comedian. I don't think he was paid for anything. Maybe he was paid. He, did, he performed stand-up at convalescent homes, but I also happen to know he stole a lot of his jokes, mm-hmm. so I consider that amateur. Okay. Um, but he... He called himself like I'm, a, I'm an amateur stand-up comic. Really? Yeah, but I remember I guess him, it was a different era. I remember him trying out his bits a bit in front of us, and it was just him reading court transcripts. Okay. Well, that was, was Lenny... not great. But that was Lenny Bruce in his later years. Um, his own court transcripts. This is my grandpa just reading funny court transcripts. <laughs> I think that he'd read mm-hmm. in a book. Oh, okay. Because I know that a lot of local newspapers can have fun with the police blotter and court transcripts 
I don't think but that's, he... But that's different from reading the actual... I don't know if docket. he ever wrote reading an original joke. Okay. I, 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 all of his jokes were kind of these cat skills, almost like parables, where I'm like, there's no way you made that up. And I, I wonder, like, one of his sillier jokes that I tell with him... He'd have me on stage sometimes, and I'd tell a joke with him. Why is your nose in the middle of your face? Because it's the center, which I didn't understand for a long time as a little kid. There's no way he made that up. There's no way. <laughs> and yet he planted the seed. Yes. True. So was it a foregone conclusion that you would go to college in New York City? No. I wanted to go wherever the musical theater program was. So my first choice was Carnegie Mellon. Okay. And I was waitlisted. Um, and I just loved NYU as a whole. I think by the time I wanted to go to college, I also wanted, I valued other things. I valued good writing programs and like good classes. Like I was kind of already, I wanted to do musical theater, but there was a part of me that knew that I wanted to do more, that I wanted to be more well-rounded and NYU was perfect. Okay. And at NYU, you quickly joined Hammercats, right? Uh-huh. What, who was on Hammercats when you joined? Um... Uh, I mean, a lot of people. Uh, Donald Glover was on there, and DC Pearson was on there. They um, were ahead of you. Yeah. Okay. Donald is three years ahead of me. Um, DC was two years ahead of me, and then my now husband was at my audition. He had already graduated, but Hammercats was this college sketch group that then morphed into a professional sketch group at UCB, even though the college sketch group remained. And so all of the alumni of Hammercats were very close with, like, the, the people currently in the program. My husband just sat down next to me. Oh. So, so he... he I'm going to get some hot water. I'm going to give him the mic for a sec. Okay. So, Dan, you, Rachel was just saying that, that you were at her audition for Hammercats. I was at her audition. I, I actually remember seeing her be, like, the be, be loudest, most obnoxious person in the waiting room. Um, and be like, oh, who's this kid? <laughs> So that it wasn't love at first sight, or nah, she's adorable. <laughs> but but did you have an inkling that I would fall in love with her? Yeah. No, I didn't uh, have an inkling that I would fall in love with her. Um, but uh, no, it took me a while. <laughs> I mean, I was a very young eighteen, like because we became friends shortly after that, and. I I went to this thing at Town Hall called the Nightlife Awards, which were these... Oh, yeah, like and, cabaret. Like a cabaret awards night, yeah. and I went alone, because that's what I did freshman year of college. I went alone to, like, theater, and I saw he was one of the judges because he worked for HBO at the time. Yeah. And so I texted him, and he's like, I wasn't going to go to those, but I'll take you to the after party. And it was my first time I had red wine, <laughs> and Elaine Stritch was at the after party, and I freaked out. I was just very young. Like, I was a very young 18. I was, uh, I, it was, I mean, it was definitely, it was like a weird event. I think I was a, a, a talent scout for HBO. I, I, my, like one of my first jobs out of college. Oh, and, nice. Uh, for their late night comedy development. And, um, and so I was doing, I was like, I don't know, like they, I got involved very loosely with that thing. And I don't know, Rachel was just like, wanted to go. So I was like, yeah, sure. We were friends from before that we had, the, what honestly, you know what, we had this really kind of. Weird, real, kind of more romantic, meet cute. And we were still just friends for many years after that. But like, we, we always really liked each other. It was uh, we ran each, into each other in an airport randomly in L.A. heading back to New York. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and at that point I had just like 
I just I think I really had just maybe I just seen her at one of these Hammercat shows. We never we never really formally met. I didn't know who you were. I think I maybe met you at a party in passing, but you were like Gregor. And I was like, I, that makes no sense because his name's Dan Gregor, but he calls himself Gregor. <laughs> anyway, and so we <laughs> we walked into uh, we were just sitting in the in the, we're on the same plane. we were on the same plane back to LA, and we were just talking and talking, and and we just asked someone if they could switch seats with us mm-hmm. so we could sit next to each other and keep talking, and like and we were just talking the whole time, and then she like literally fell asleep on my shoulder, and it was like it was like the sweetest thing. It was so sweet. Aww. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> But Hammercats was unique at that time because it was a college group that also had a regular slot at UCB. Uh, yeah, we kind of had this weird thing where we were uh, – when we started the group, we um, were this NYU group. And then we did the Skidmore Comedy Festival. And, like, the next weekend we did um, Dirtiest Sketch Show in New York, which okay. was, like, this competition for filthy sketches. And we kind of, like, were the standout college sketch group at that festival that was hosted by Owen uh, Owen Burke, right? Um, who was the artistic director of the UCB at that time? Right now, and he's like the head of. Now he's funnier, one of the head development funnier, people. Funnier, funnier, funnier Dot. Uh, Gary, Gary Sanchez. Sanchez. Yeah, and um, and he um, and then the next weekend we we won uh, the Dirtiest Sketch Show, which which was also hosted by someone one of his close friends, uh, Jackie Clark. Oh right. um, Okay. Who uh, is also a very talented, successful writer. And my favorite improv teacher I've ever had. Mine too. Also, yeah. the best improv coach in the world. And. Uh, and they just sort of were like, oh, you guys are great. Like, you want a slot? You want to go? And, like, we we just – they gave us an hour to run our shows, like, every week. It was crazy. We just had an hour every week for a year at UCB. And, um, and we graduated somewhere within that year. And so we just sort of, like, did – did both it was kind of lived on as like we kept a club going for the kids who didn't graduate and then we had a live show at ucb forever too and so the group started just mushrooming a little bit and now at this point there's i mean probably over 100 graduates of the group but it's strictly college now i don't think they're no i don't, I don't think, think they're doing live live professional shows because it's hard to balance both I, and I've, also ucb just exploded too yeah, yeah true and if I recall, there was some drama with you guys. This is before my time about, like, who stayed on the college group and who did the professional group, right? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, like, a complicated, fraught moment. We were, like, a 12-person college sketch group, I think, with, two, like, a film director and a, and, a, uh, and a stage director. And Anyway, and then once people graduated, it became, like, it was just complicated. Like, all right, how do we manage who's still in college but also in the remains in the group and... There was it sort of formed like a creative nucleus of who was like really writing the material, um, and that sort of became the, the the group that moved forward. And did that group take on a new name? To- uh, no, we remained. That's that's we remained Hammercats out in the world, and we mm-hmm. kind of continued doing UCB shows for another while after that as this core, which was um, which is me and my writing partner still to this day, Doug Mand and uh, Donald Glover. And uh, DC Pearson, Dominic Durkis, the guys who sort of went on to do Derek, right. and um, this other group, Greg and Lou, um, Greg Burke and Lou Perez, and uh, and Fran Gillespie, who's one of the high up writers uh, at Life. SNL right now, yeah. and um, and we had a uh, our film director was Dan Ekman, who was also part of Derek, and um, and AJ Morales was our sort of stage director, and. It was, you know, it was still on very unwieldy. We all sort of, as you can hear it, we all sort of continued to bifurcate into smaller groups. Was that on purpose, or was there a point at which Hammercats was trying to make it all together? There was. A, I mean, we got the, honestly the, the 
the kill point was we we got offered the Aspen Comedy Festival, and they straight up told us, you can come if you cut two people. And it, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why would, they, why would they do that? I mean, I don't, I don't fucking know. It was the cruelest thing in the world, and um, and it was just one of those things where you're we like, it, it, the writing started to become very clear that as much as we all wildly respect each other and like like what we're doing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this this unwieldy group of like I think eight eight performers and another two directors is not really a functional unit that can go forward. Who would have been cut? <laughs> Tell us. I, I definitely, I definitely have. That's why we didn't. We didn't. We didn't go to Aspen because we were like, no one can be cut. We're all invaluable. So that's Dan and Doug. <laughs> you, think, you think you and Doug were the ones that would, that would have been cut? <laughs> Rachel, did you? Uh... You know, it wasn't you. Wait. Aspen said, "Cut these people." I'm done. <laughs> what? Where are you going? <laughs> I oh. th- he just let a clue slip. Yeah, yeah. That it wasn't him. Um, anyhow, but they, they didn't want to cut anyone. I think is what he's saying. Right. Is they were yeah. all for one and one for all. Yeah, until we all broke up. Yeah. So I was at the bar the night that um, Hammercats broke up. <gasps> I don't remember that. I was. It was at um, on McDougal. Um, I was a freshman. I got in, just I, not even with a fake ID. I just someone let me in. I was sitting on someone's lap because that's what I did. <laughs> I dated a lot of these gentlemen. No. But before I dated my husband, um, there's quite a lot of drama involved in that. And someone explained to me, they were like, hey, you're actually witnessing a pretty momentous uh, conversation right now. Uh, the Derek guys are leaving mm. Hammercats. Yeah. And I was like, oh, another Jaeger bomb, please. <laughs> <laughs> For you, Rachel, how many groups were you a part of before you decided to start making solo projects, like the music videos? Um, I mean, Hammercats was my main one, but I tried to do other shows with other people. I tried to like start up other things with other writing partners, but it just became clear I wanted to be my own voice. I wanted to have complete control over everything I was doing. I had some drama with some of the guys on Hammercats, and it kind of... um um. Uh, it was people I like looked up to and it, and when the drama went down and I was like kind of taken advantage of a little um, I resolved to kind of find my own voice and not do what I thought like would fit in with the guys like do the kind of stuff that I actually really liked writing because up until then I'd been just kind of like trying to like for lack of a better term please the male gaze um, and I took a musical theater writing class at NYU uh, and during the summer that I fell in love with. And then I, when I graduated, I just kind of resolved I wanted to be my own. I, I put up a show at UCB with some friends, and the show was passed on. And I remember, like, a couple of the reasons for passing, not all, but a couple were, like, things that I'd given notes on but was, like, overruled. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to be, if I'm going to be passed on, I want it to be stuff that I had complete control over. And so that's kind of when it started. I wanted to be my own one-person sketch group. And I have to say, I got really lucky. Like, within uh, two years of making that decision, I had this music video that I did go viral, and I got my first TV writing job. Was Ray Bradbury the first video? Yeah. And Jack Dolger was a part of that? Jack Dolger was a part of that. He was my co-writer and the producer. And I met him, the producer of that song, and I met him through Gregor. Yeah, he was um, a good friend of mine from NYU, and he... Uh, we had, I think, uh, he'd produced 
some other comedy song that I, that I just worked on for Eliza Skinner and, um, and for so, I Eat Pandas or for something else? Um, no, we, uh, I was starting – Adam Pally had just gotten like a sketch pilot with E. Okay. And we wanted to do a Lady Gaga parody. Of Poker Face called Crazy Face. You played it for me. Yeah, and I think it was – I mean it was such a bad sketch. And it, it was not a great wasn't, It wasn't good at all, but it was like – I mean literally I think it was just like a string of non sequiturs about what she would put on her face. Which is uh, literally what Weird Al did with Perform This Way. <laughs> Three years later. <laughs> yeah, so really ahead of the curve. <laughs> we were three years ahead of a man who makes stuff for 20 years ago. <laughs> how, how did you know Ray Bradbury was the first song t- to make a video for? I did, and I had this song in my back pocket. I knew it was funny, mm-hmm. um, and I knew I wanted to get into making videos as well as trying to get stuff up at UCB, and I was like, oh, that makes a great music video, and I knew through Gregor and some friends this amazing DP named Paul Rondeau, and I knew this amazing director, Paul Berganti, who I'd worked with before, and I was like, I found a place, sorry, I'm a little cold, I have a little cold, um, there was a place in Brooklyn uh, that was a old Catholic school that rented out, it was still the property of the church, so it was donation-based, and you could rent out the entire place for a donation only, and I paid them $200. I was just going to ask what the budget yeah. was for this. And uh, I paid... Paul Rondeau, I think, 300 and I paid Paul Briganti 400 to direct and edit. <laughs> and the Britney Spears, originally it was going to be kind of hipstery, like it was almost going to be me on the street just like singing about it, like walking through the streets of New York. And then you and Jack, after the song was recorded, I think he'd come up with the baby one more time veneer, right? Yeah. Um, Jack and I were just, we loved the song and, just, and we were just like, I just need something that makes it like... That like crystallizes the the game of of sexualizing books and and it um, and like oh and because the whole joke is how over sexualized you know this this idea is like to sexualize Ray Bradbury like that is so like kind of hilarious and so not to Ray Bradbury not to Ray Bradbury <laughs> yes um, but uh, but and so we were just like well what's the what's the pinnacle of like over sexualization and. Um, and we basically just wrote. We just uh, we just kind of suggested to Rachel we do that. Were you able to monetize that? Yeah, uh, eventually. I mean, look, it's paid back. It's weight in gold now. Because I um, wasn't sure what YouTube's ad. N- oh no! Oh, oh, monetize it on YouTube? Yeah. No. Because no. um, so those four dirty. or five million views didn't. No, I don't make money off that music video. I still don't. I made money off selling the song, but not off the video. Okay. Did you have a second song ready to go? No. Once. No. So there was there was I, there, I there was no at, plan to like capitalize on this. Um, I mean, I had a if show. If it went at UC- viral, I had a show at UCB, mm-hmm. and then I got hired for a TV writing job, and I released the next video almost a year later because I was just so busy. You moved to LA in, in that time too, right? Yeah, I moved to LA in that time, and I, I was on this writing staff that was very hard to be on, but I got better as a writer. And, I mean, in some ways, like, doing the, at the time, the goal of doing these music videos was to get a writing job and was to get an agent. And so it's like, well, I did it. Now, if I just do more music videos, that would just be creating, like, a music video brand. Because the sketch stuff, I wanted to be my own one-person sketch group, but it was also, like, um, a way to get an agent and a way to get noticed. I mean, that's kind of all you want. So getting a writing gig on, what was it, Alan Gregory? Yeah. So you're like, oh, I've made it now. Kind of, yeah. 
and it and wasn't it, until we, I was on that staff that I was like, oh no, I wanted, I still want to be doing music videos a lot because it makes me happy, and I want to build. I still want to build my own brand, even though I've gotten that kind of brass ring of representation. Okay, so there's a point in amid all this where you're trying out for Just for Laughs because you did the Just for Laughs New Faces characters in 2012. Yeah, so what happened was... Which was two years after Bradbury yeah. and a year after Alan Gregory. I mean, I got really fortunate. So while I was on Alan Gregory, I was writing more music videos and also writing another show to put up at UCB. Um, so that show was amazing. That was my favorite show. One of my favorite UCB stage shows. Triple Threat? Of all time. Yeah, I was... Thank you. It was called Rachel Bloom is a Triple Threat. And... Out of that show... Was that New York or L.A.? L.A. Okay. And then once in New York... You moved out there for the TV gig? Yeah. Okay. Um, And that was like later that year. So I moved out end of 2010 and that show was in 2011. And so when I tried out for Just for Laughs, I did a mix of stuff from that stage show. That was actually kind of what my bit was at Just for Laughs. I did like a truncated version of that stage show where I played a version of myself that had starred in... The Broadway revival of Annie, which I obviously hadn't, haven't. And then she'd been kidnapped and was living in a basement for three years and was just like now back trying to network and get her name as an actress out there. But I kept my same name. And so I did a version of that for my Just for Laughs tryout. And then um, I was I heard that the booker for Just for Laughs loved my music video, Pictures of Your Dick, because this was in 2012. And they were like, could you put pictures of your dick in your just for laughs audition because like you'll probably get it if you do that song and i did and i got it yeah i remember uh in my write-up from just for laughs that year that yours was the one performance in that showcase that wasn't just a medley of characters it was like oh this is this is me it was a one-act play i mean i i actually felt montreal did not go well i felt the audience i i thought that it was i thought that like I bombed, and I remember calling you after my first performance being like, I never want to do comedy again. <laughs> yeah. It was just a really, it was a hard, it was a tough room, and I felt that what I was doing was different than everyone else, and it felt like the audience didn't really laugh, and it felt not great. Did you have expectations for Montreal? Um, I thought I would do better at least than it did, and maybe But in terms of like a development meetings. deal? Or? No, no, because I already had, going into Montreal... I had a blind deal. Oh. I got a blind deal with Fox, I think based on Fuck Me Ray Bradbury, which at the time a blind deal was really cool. And then I realized, oh, no, it's a way that a studio can completely take advantage of your efforts and have you generate. Because I had a pitch. They decided last minute, literally two weeks before my pitch, oh, we don't like that pitch. So I came up with a new pitch that didn't sell. So then they were like, well, you still owe us like something that theoretically sells. And so then I just came up with a new show. An, an animated show called City Tropolis that I'm really proud of still. Um, and then Fox passed on it because it was too similar to New Girl in that it had women in it, I guess. Um, the only connection was that there was a, f- a female involved in the primary story. And it was about, and that it was about like a girl living with roommates. I okay. mean, it really has nothing to do with New Girl. But this was at a time, I mean, I'll say it. I was in a meeting with a, a higher up at Fox and he's like, biggest mistake we ever made was calling it new girl you alienate half the population by using the word girl <laughs> they literally said that and he's like it's true he's like yeah we guys don't want to watch it because it has the word girl in it did any of your previous pitches have music in them yeah i pitched um the, the 
so I should say the show that I pitched before the animated pilot, which wasn't a musical, was a musical. And I was like, oh, it's a pitch. It's a performance. So I wrote a song uh, that has elements of West Covina in it, actually, like like the kind of idealism in it. It was about a girl trying to be an actress in New York, so real original. Um, and I performed that for pitches, like in front of these executives. But like when you perform, when you're in a pitch, you're two feet away right. <laughs> from people. And so like definitely. In a room like this or yeah. with couches? Yeah. Um, no one bought it. <laughs> and then I pitched a musical show later with Adult Swim that no one also gave a fuck about. So when Aline Brosh McKenna reached out to me, had seen my music video, she'd seen my music videos and was like, let's create a musical show. I was like, good luck. No one seems to care. Did you or, or Alina take any um, solace in the fact that there had been other shows that grew out of YouTube videos? Whether it was no. Broad City or Workaholics? No, or, I mean, I mean, the thing is, we even had though good, they weren't music videos, it was it wasn't a solace. YouTube to TV. The thing room. is, Aline was always sure the show was going to sell. When, it was night and day when I walk into a room just myself selling a musical show, and I walk into a room with Aline Brush McKenna selling a show that stands on its own, even if it weren't a musical. Because Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was her idea. It, it's night and day. It just, you couldn't even compare the two things. Okay. How, how different was that Showtime version of the show? It was pretty similar. Um, there were some dirtier parts, like my character makes out with a guy in CW, but in the Showtime she gives him a handjob. Um, there were some, like, fucks we cut out, and then we made it an hour, so we added a scene or two, but the pilot's pretty much the same. Okay. And being on the CW... You know, it's a network that, that has a definite niche audience, but it's not known for having, like, breakout hits or winning awards. Well, so. well the, the thing that inspired us to send it to them was seeing Jane the Virgin. And Gina just won the Golden Globe. And Jane, especially the pilot, kind of tonally felt like what our show could be. And that's what inspired us. So at the time, they had just had their first critically acclaimed breakout hit. And they were in the same... Did How much did it help that they were in the same Viacom... It definitely... It definitely structure with it de- Showtime. It definitely so it helped because CBS partially owns it. And CBS was always our studio, so they could really make sure they'd seen all the materials. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know how much that really... I think it really helped. I think that makes an enormous difference because otherwise leaving your home studio means another studio has to like pay someone back for the pilot whereas now the pilot was revenue neutral no but the but the pilot could have gone to another network with the same studio uh i think it i think that that's a big reason that these things are really easy move easily because there's there's no change in in executive structure because cbs can't cbs can't go to Comedy Central. CBS can't go to a lot of these networks because their FX won't work with CBS right. um, because they're an enormous corporate entity that has a ton of overhead that a lot of networks don't want to pay. Right. Well, when we pitched when we pitched the show originally, we only went out to a couple networks with CBS. Well, FX wanted to buy the show, and when we went out, we did not. Our contract with CBS was just like we only pitched just to Netflix. Showtime and HBO with CBS. The rest we didn't have CBS. And was Crazy X the first show you did that went to pilot even? Yeah. Okay. It was a massive deal. Huge deal. So the fact that you were able to have so much success that first year, did that make it easier to deal with ratings or any sort of... We were just so happy to have a show. We thought the show was dead. 
And we knew the show was good, and, and I'm a massive fan of shows like Freaks and Geeks, which have like one season, and it's a cult hit. Right. And Aline and I were both very... I mean, I, I remember when the ratings weren't great, she was like, honestly, if we have one season of like a show that's a cult hit, wouldn't that be great? And I was like, yeah, that would be amazing. So having three seasons, it must be... Yeah. You, you must feel like no stress at all. Um, even though even though the first question on the gate was no one wants to sponsor you. And <laughs> yeah, it's not... I've just... They support us so much creatively, and I'm pretty sure we're going to get a fourth and final season. I don't know. It just... We were in this nice bubble where we've always felt really creatively supported by the CW. How How important is it to you that you can also break out all of the musical numbers for YouTube videos? I mean... I guess I don't see an alternative because now, like, everyone does that. I mean, everyone takes, you know, there are clips of every show right. that kind of live online. I think it's really cool. I think it introduces people to the show. And also we've made, at this point, over 100 really great musical sketches. And it's also enough to actually launch a tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was the hardest part about doing this tour, and I just did the lineup the other night is narrowing shit down. Right, we have when you over, have 100 I mean, songs. <laughs> over 100. I mean, by the time the series ends, I think we'll have like 150 original songs, which has really never been done. Other than like Sesame Street. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought, I thought, I thought it was like, I thought, I thought we were being disruptive. Oh, no, continue. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that too. I thought yeah. you were like, what, what are you doing back there? Yeah, sorry. And when are you going to stop? Yeah. No, no, no. Thank you. <laughs> So what advice would you have for that that spunky college freshman who shows up at NYU now wanting to be a musical theater star? Well, that's a whole other world. I mean, being a musical theater star is, look, you're getting up at, you have a book of repertoire. You're getting, I mean, part of what made me want to write musical comedy was my own frustration in trying to find a decent musical comedy song to audition with and being like, I, the, there's nothing, especially for women. There was nothing. It was just like kind of songs that were comedy adjacent where it's just like, I'm wearing cool shoes today. Like, it's just not even funny. Right. So I guess what I'd say is life is about being happy and your talent is not synonymous with your self-worth. And so if you study musical theater and still want to do it, great. Work your ass off and um, make sure you're nice to people and make sure you're reliable. And if you're like, I don't really like this. Step away from it. It's okay. Well, thanks for being thanks for being <laughs> nice to me. Great, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com. More interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.